Welcome to Childhood Art, a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas. I'm Christopher Schulte, Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. I'm Hyun Park, Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. As an extension of the Childhood Art Speaker Series, the Childhood Art Podcast uses the format of a follow-up conversation to center the practices of leading scholar practitioners with special attention given to the untold and perhaps understated interests, connections, and experiences that shape their work. Today, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Hannah Dyer. Dr. Dyer is an associate professor in the Department of Child and Youth Studies at Brock University in Ontario, Canada. She is a cultural theorist of childhood with concentration in art, aesthetics, social conflict, queer theory, and psychoanalysis. She is interested in how aesthetic and expressive cultures of childhood reframe relationships to political crises, historical traumas, racialization, and social debates about belonging. While taking the child's material vulnerabilities and pressing need for care into account, this work also emphasizes fantasy and futurity. Her book, The Queer Aesthetics of Childhood, Asymmetries of Innocence and the Cultural Politics of Child Development, Rutgers University Press, extends these lines of analyses. She is working on a research project titled Drawing Queer and Trans Family, Understanding Kinship Through Children's Art, and her writing on childhood has been published in numerous books and journals. Dr. Dyer, welcome to Childhood Art. I'm so happy to be here, thank you. So we'd like to begin by asking you what I think is an impossibly large and in some ways inhospitable question. So for that, I apologize, but we'd like to, to begin by asking if you could maybe talk a little bit about how it is you came to do work with and in relationship to childhood. Uh, were there experiences or moments or influences that, that shaped that interest and in, in the career that you've had? And we wonder if, you might just talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. A big question, um, for sure, but, but it's nice to talk about. So I would say my thoughts about childhood beyond the experience of being a child um, very much originate from the experience of working in group homes and a shelter with young people and doing that work at the same time as I was doing in undergrad and then graduate studies. Um, and, and in both of those degrees, like really emphasizing queer theory, finding queer theory, um, you know, falling in love with queer theory. And so um, it's really at the juncture of that form of employment and my education and a really particular lineage of queer theory, I would say, um, like in the mid 2000s, um, that, that might be the core of my inquiry, um, really. And so a lot of my theories of childhood are finessed by an education in queer theory, but also the experience of working with young people um, who were homeless, for example, um, or staying in a shelter. And um, I would have to thank my PhD supervisor, Dina Georges, for, you know, who's now my continued mentor, but for helping me narrate and really sharpen my inquiry. Um, so, so working with people in a group home in a shelter 
caused me to think deeply about the non-material dynamics of love and protection that are offered to children, but also really my material dynamics, um, like housing, income, racism, violence, and how they're connected. So, so, you know, a lot of my book talks about this notion of the asymmetries of childhood innocence, and I might tie that concept back to my work, right, within group homes and, and shelters, um, and to think about how our theories of childhood can be bettered through a coalitional politics, right, that thinks about um, other forms of vulnerability and marginalization. So there's the intangible and aesthetic and sensorial stuff that queer theory has provided me, um, but I don't think that that's easily separated from the material struggle um, that some of the children that I think about and work alongside experience. And, and so I would thank my PhD supervisor, but I would also thank the person who taught me how to work carefully and ethically in those spaces, all the while being a university student and feeling also outside of those spaces in, in important ways. Um, and, and so I would say thank you to her for helping me to think about those coalitional politics and their relation to reproductive justice, for example. Um, yeah, so I, I would say that has to do with the kind of core of my academic inquiry, experiencing those two things at once and thinking about how childhood innocence doesn't protect all young people equally. Um, you know, but there's also, to explain my project, my own history of feeling queer, right? Um, and, and so I can't just locate it outside of the self, but there is also um, thinking about my own childhood, not as one that was like purely formulated through an identity that had to do with some kind of LGBTQ subject formation that came later, right? But, but for sure, there must be some sort of queer feeling that has to do with my own childhood there too. Um, and then also a backstory would be a history of reading, right? Um, and, and falling in love with books um, and not thinking about that as, as lonely, right? But also a, a community in many ways. So, you know, I, I would say my current work is sustained by a legacy of reading, reading feminist theory, reading poetry, you know, um, and, and for sure my favorite parts about being an academic are often just sitting by myself and, and reading, right, um, and finding community alongside other people. And then I would say the only other backstory that I, I would probably admit to is the way that my current departmental affiliation probably has shaped and reshaped my work. So, I work in a department of, of child and youth studies, um, and it's truly a multidisciplinary project. So I'm not an art historian, right? I'm not in a, I don't know, English department. I'm in a child and youth studies department, and my colleagues are neuroscientists and developmental psychologists. So, you know, like I, I like to think about the poetics of work and aesthetics, but I also have to convey the importance of my work to my colleagues. And I think in many ways that reshapes how I describe what I do and also the questions that I ask.
this may be a, a great segue then to discuss something that you brought up almost immediately as you were beginning to describe your work in, uh, in group homes. But you mentioned the idea of a coalition of politics, which I found to be a really like just a really rich concept to think with. And so I wondered if we could sort of double back to that, uh, your mention of that. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about what what did you what what do you mean by a coalition of politics? And I in some ways I'm seeing a connection to um, how you're describing your your current academic setting and and the different knowledges and practices that that compose that, as well as maybe the politics that are are part of that. But um, I wonder which are productive, I would say. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I think that um, queer theory in its most capacious form can offer a kind of description of coalitional politics that thinks not just about one subject, right, but thinks about the productivity of recognizing mutual forms of struggle, right? Um, and so I think, I think that's a contribution that queer theory at its strongest makes, right? Um, for sure, and people are making this point in really good ways when they're making note of what's happening with laws and um, you know difficult situations um, in the U.S., particularly in relation to queer and, and specifically to trans young people, right? And and saying this is what happens when we don't have a coalitional politics, but we we think just about one issue, right? So, yeah. I was just gonna ask um, if you might follow up a little bit on on the the point that you made about reading, and you know, because I, I think it's a really I thought it was a really lovely point to to talk about in terms of something that has has really contributed to and shaped what you do and how you do it, and 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 continues to kind of move you in that work, but that sort of lineage of reading that you spoke of, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about that and, and maybe why, why you think it's so valuable and important and to what extent you might uh, provide advice around that to maybe graduate students, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's harder to talk about reading in a, uh, an origin story because you know for me there is hardly an origin i've i've always loved to read right and that's what the university has offered me really is it is a job where i get to read and um it's also the case that i didn't i didn't continue with the work i was doing because i found more hope and optimism in reading um and and so you know there's that there's that reality too right um but but I would say that I couldn't do the work that I do without a long history of reading theory, right? I mean, I think about myself primarily as a theorist, right? Um, and so, and I think that that's my contribution, right? Um, and so the precision that I have in terms of theorizing something is only ever because I've read other people doing it better than I do. <laughs> um, and so, so <laughs> reading provides an example of how I can be better. Um, and, and the more I read, the better I am. But of course, reading is also a, a space of imagination. So when I say reading, I don't mean just academic journal articles, but I mean reading novels and, and poetry. 
Thank you for clarifying that, Hannah. I think it's a, it's a really lovely thing to, to, to contemplate in terms of, you know, just broadly one's practice of reading um, a wide range of texts and even experiences and, and engagements that they may have. So, um, and, and I, love, I love the idea of, uh, you know, engaging with something um, as a kind of model that might continue to inform your own work and, and practice. I think that's really uh, an important lesson to take away. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I mean, I would say also my favorite method or methodology is close reading, right? Um, and so part of the hard part of being in a department like mine is justifying the, the practice of reading as method, right? Mm -hmm. um, which, is, which is quite different than scientific method. Great, thanks, Hannah. Um, so it seems that queerness is not only the subject, but also an approach and attitude of your inquiry, um, one that embodies the veering away from expectation you have done so well to talk about in your work. So in thinking about the relational matters central to childhood studies and queer theory, I wonder what role collaboration plays in this attunement to queerness, as I find that the collaboration between adults and children, collaboration with effective objects and concepts, as well as collaboration with other disciplines are foundational to your work. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about queerness and collaboration? Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to, to talk about collaboration for sure. And, and I'd like the spirit of the question, like the one that came before it, which is like, can you talk about gratitude, I would say, um, and togetherness and relationality. So um, yeah, just, I appreciate it. Um, and and it, if I continue with gratitude, collaboration is also saying thank you to those who have written the books, like in queer and trans and feminist theory, right? Um, and so maybe that's a collaboration that's a little bit different because I'm reading work that people don't necessarily know I'm reading their work. <laughs> and yet I like to think about it as collaboration. Um, but but yeah, my, my projects have collaborated with people, adults and children. There's a long collaboration with books. Um, and, and these are acts of gratitude for people who have written a set of questions and concerns that gather really in the overlap between sexuality studies and childhood studies. Um, and, and so Catherine von Stockton, reflecting on Eve Sedgwick's work, um, calls, calls intertextual readings of queer theory the call and response of our relation. So that might be a good way to describe, to describe that form of collaboration, which is reading other people's work, but feeling like it's a call and response between you and them, um, whether you get to tell them or not, really. So, so I would say reading queer theory has been an act of care, like both affective, textual, psychic care, really. Um, and, and that's a kind of different approach to collaboration, but one that's been important to me. Um, you know, but you ask about queer collaboration and, and we might think about how queerness is actually the opposite of collaboration in some cases, right? So um, a lot of people describe or have described queerness as that which makes it really hard to collaborate with the social world, especially a social world that's structured through 
heteronormativity, for example, or cisnormativity or, you know, racism, like, it could be that collaboration isn't always possible. And so we need a theory to describe where it's hard to collaborate, right? Or where pieces of the self have to be repressed, right? So, so we might think about the relationship between shame, um, repression, and collaboration as a, as a really complex formula, but also description of the self. And, and so um, Gina Georges, who I referenced earlier, describes queerness as that which undoes us, not which produces a kind of legible identity, which is often how it's used. Um, or Kara Keeling says that we can apprehend queerness when it's a structuring antagonism of the social. You know, so that's like a different approach maybe to think about queerness, not as collaboration, and yet I'd like to collaborate with queer people, <laughs> you know? So, so there's something there about a kind of coalitional politics too, maybe. Um, but then there's also a relationship between queer theory and childhood studies that's expressed, I think, in your question, because they both suggest that we acquire a self through a relationship to others. The child becomes a self only because of other people but queerness only becomes what it is or is defined relationally too, right? Um, so, so we could say something about that, um, that they're not individual experiences, either of them, but that they're relational. Um, and, you know, and these, even as I pulled the question and the word apart, I still love my queer collaborations, <laughs> you know, like collaborations about queer things with queer people. Um, and, and maybe those collaborations are a way to put the self back together, right? So if you can't collaborate because of homophobia, can't collaborate with the self, you can collaborate with other people and it can be reparative. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about work with Chase Joint and Julia Sinclair Palm, um, who I did that project with children's drawings with, um, Casey Messia. Dina Georges, Natalie Curito, and Michelle Miller, for example. Those are queer collaborations. Um, uh, perhaps my biggest queer collaboration is parenting with Casey Lucia, I would say. So um, that's another way to approach it. And then I could talk about collaboration between and across and even beyond disciplines, right? Um, so to think about queer collaboration as an interdisciplinary project. Um, and I could thank Queer Studies for its capacity to do interdisciplinary work. Um, and that I've never really been submerged in an academic discipline. I'm not even good at it, really. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, there's that too. Um, and and so, so thinking about collaboration beyond the confines of a discipline has been exciting and helpful to me. That's great, thank you. Hannah, when we last spoke or when you were giving your presentation previously, you mentioned something that's really stuck with me. Uh, you said that children's art is not always for us, adults that is. 
So I, I found this to be really powerful, uh, a prompt that we as adults, um, I think would be wise to continually spend time with and think about and reflect on. Um, and that's not to suggest that adults are not obviously, but just as a, as a kind of reminder that's ongoing. Would you be willing to tell us just a little bit more about this in terms of how you're thinking about this or maybe uh, where your thinking is currently in relationship to this idea of children's art not always being for us? Yeah, it's actually funny because I was in the admin, I have an admin role, and I was in a meeting earlier and I was taking notes in a book and I went to turn the page and I stumbled across one of my son's drawings and had a moment where I was like, am I allowed to to use this page, you know, and then I kept going and there's tons of drawings, like the drawings never stop. <laughs> so, you know, there's also the question of like, <laughs> uh, which is good and should be saved and which one I can write on, right? Um, and and either way, it's, it's a violence to him and an imposition and I didn't take notes beyond that, right? But I think that has also to do with your question in some ways. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to think about it. I don't think that I know the answer and, and anything that is in the space of ethics has to do with those kinds of aporias, right? Like aporias in the, the ways that we don't know. Um, but uh, I do know that I don't want to be extractive, to witness children's art and decipher it in a way that extracts meaning from it that has to do with my own purposes. Or, or my own desires for a certain kind of world or a certain kind of subject. Um, so yeah, I've been thinking about this and how we might focus less on deciphering the art and more on producing conditions in which it can be made, right? Which is to say, maybe that it's more important that we provide the tools for children to, to make art and aesthetically express themselves rather than analyze it. Um, and I say that all the while doing a project that analyzes children's art, right? Um, but, but I think that there's something in the making that is sometimes more important, like in terms of the expression of the self is more important than us containing the child in the description of their you know, aesthetic symbolization maybe. Um, and I think that because I, I believe that aesthetic expression has both social and emotional qualities. Children need it, right? Um, and so every, every act of interpretation is a projection of ourself onto their needs in some ways. Um, and Lisa Farley and Aparna Tark had written really beautifully about about this, like the ethical challenges of witnessing children's drawing, particularly children who have suffered as a result of war. So the necessity of, of looking at their work as an archive of a history of trauma, but also they use the language of belatedness, which is to say that once we see the drawing, we arrive too late to the scene where the trauma occurred. So it also has to do with temporality too, I think it really interesting ways um and and also i think we can learn from queer and trans theories of childhood when we think about children's art because those theories of childhood 
consistently remind us that every time we talk about children and childhood, <laughs> we're projecting our own ideologies onto young people. Um, and I think we do the same with art. So that, that impossibility is a space of ethics, I think, for me. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I kind of want to follow up on something that you said there. You mentioned the idea of the archive. And, and, and one of the things that I, I find really interesting, and I think I'm sensing you move conceptually around this, but you're talking the idea of like the conditions under which something becomes possible as a kind of archive in and of itself, right? So the book that you opened where the drawing was is itself a kind of archive of sorts, right? Um, that moves us to maybe recognize or encounter certain conditions uh, that led to this drawing in some way or that produced it or that uh, might move us to kind of re-encounter it. And so I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that. I think there's like, there's an interesting conceptual move around your framing of conditions that make something possible. And then sort of the works that young people produce and the need to sort of encounter those works and those conditions as a kind of archival moment, if you will. And so I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to, I wish I could bring my friends who work in museum studies, you know, those sorts of things into the conversation. I feel like they're much better at, at talking about it than I am, but I could speak for a second about the project that I was doing with Julia, where we archived children's drawings of their queer and trans families. Um, and, and so, you know, a move to produce a kind of collective representation of their families where they, they got drawn into the project, right? So they drew these pictures, but then also I felt like it was an act of imposition in some ways <laughs> to put them all together in a, in a museum space or an art gallery. And, and I still wonder if that was for them or for us. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I love doing work like that, but but I also pause to think about if it's for them or for the adult audience who's then witness to to their drawing. So to pick up on this idea of, of witnessing and, and you've you've spoke to this various times throughout this discussion already and that in terms of the ethics of witnessing, the ethics of being with or being there with, with young people and their work. Um, you also mentioned uh, previously in your, in your, when giving your presentation, this idea of witnessing beyond expectation, I think was the, the way that you phrased it, which I thought was really, really um, a lovely way to think, kind of extend, uh, not just this idea of witnessing ethics, but to also highlight or underscore the ways in which expectation, expectation or allegiance or the kind of inclinations that we become comfortable with, how they sort of settle in and become part of that kind of ethical work. And so I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that idea of uh, witnessing beyond expectation, and then maybe to just touch on the different kinds of expectations that you yourself continue to encounter and grapple with and negotiate 
either broader kind of social expectations that exist that continue to rip, you know, uh, bubble up or those that bubble up in your own kind of personal relationship to the work? Sorry, that was a massive question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's great. And, and I, I could say, you know, I've been working on this piece about children's storytelling and, and describing children's storytelling as aesthetic expression and particularly queer aesthetic expression in some ways. And, and a quick, like I keep stopping and thinking like, we should just leave kids' stories alone, right? And, and there's a certain kind of foreclosure that happens every time they're not left alone. And yet to not attend to them is to ignore a child who is speaking to you, right? Um, and, so, and so I think this relates to your question in, in some ways. So the question is about creating ethical distance all the while paying attention to the child. Right. Um, and I think that's a really hard thing to do. So maybe to care generously for a child is also to know when to leave their stories alone, to leave their theories alone, to not correct them. Right. Um, but to let their fictions breathe, to let their fictions thrive, to let their drawings be as the child wants them to without us deciphering them, I would say. Um, Dina Georges has this really uh, beautiful notion of something she calls queer listening. Um, and, and she's talking about listening to an aesthetic object, which can include a story, right? Um, and particularly something that expresses another person's suffering. So a piece of art about suffering or a story of a life in which suffering has occurred. And she says, the ethical thing to do is not to be disengaged while you're listening, but queer listening is that space between engagement and not wanting to master something, right? Um, and, and I think that there's a profound lesson for us in, in being with children, right? Um, and, and I realize that as I'm talking, parenting disrupts everything I want to say, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, like my kid is telling me a story and I'm like, okay, well, we're late for school. Right. So, you know, <laughs> there's also those really pragmatic moments that disrupt everything I think I've previously said about childhood. Um, and so I'm I'm in the process of revision. And that revision is caused by collaboration, I would say, um, to go back to the question um, and collaboration with my child. Right. Um, and, and to think about the hours and minutes. Um, that I feel are wasted <laughs> and, and he feels that are just being lived, right? Like the story of the shark, um, you know, that was bothering him this morning, uh, there was no shark, but to him, that's very important, right? But to me, <laughs> the school bell is ringing and preschool is, is starting, you know, so. I think, I think it's, it's a, it's a really wonderful example. Uh, one that, you know, I, can absolutely relate to. I mean, even, even from this morning. Um, but it also reminds me too of, of this idea, the conditions in which something is possible and, and also not possible. And so like, as I hear you talk about this too, and I'm starting to see like a, a really direct connection between 
you know, witnessing ethics, witness, uh, uh, witnessing beyond expectation and sort of the, the real material kind of conditions under which something becomes possible or becomes possible differently perhaps or, or impossible. And I, I wonder if, I mean, it's just an interesting connection. I, I don't know how, how prepared or ready you would be to talk about that connection, but I think it's an interesting one. And I wonder if you maybe have just some general thoughts about it. I mean, generally, I think to go back to what I said previously, like the core of the inquiry is really that theories of childhood innocence don't relate to all children, right? Um, and, and that's very much an example of where the experiences of many young people interrupt our our notions of how the world should be right um and and so it it has to do with like i could theorize all day right i could revel in fictions and um you know talk about how things should be but that doesn't reflect the material realities of many young people's lives mm -hmm. um and and so you know for for like a lot of the space of my dissertation, for example, was working with queer theories of childhood that really weren't about children, right? Um, and so in some ways, my work speaks back to that tendency. And, and in some ways, like a lot of that work comes out of literary studies. I think a more capacious address of childhood can think about the embodied experiences of children while also thinking about theories of childhood. All right, Hannah, thank you so much. Um, we very much enjoyed the time to converse with you today. Um, as always, it is a pleasure to be with you and think with you. Um, next time in Childhood Art, we sit down with Dr. Brent Wilson, Professor Emeritus of Art Education at the Pennsylvania State University and the inaugural recipient of the CSCA's Christine Marmay Thompson's Distinguished Research Award. Um, until then, please visit our webpage and ad for additional updates and news at www.centerforthestudyofchartedart.com. Thank you.